The history of Christianity changed dramatically when Emperor Constantine the Great adopted Christianity as his religion. The custom of the Roman Empire had been to adhere to pagan religions before that, but something happened, and we don't know exactly if it was his mother who converted him or some other input that he received, but we do know that he had a vision before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, and in that vision, he saw that if a Christian symbol was held out in front of the troops, they would have victory, and he thought, let's give it a try. And when the troops did do that, they held the symbol with the chi and the rho, very famous Christian symbol now. They received that victory and his power increased and he decided it was a good idea for all of the Roman Empire to be a Christian empire. It's a strange story, actually. The result of that caused the faith to spread in a way that it might not have otherwise. But Constantine himself he chose to not get baptized. Well, not to get baptized yet, at least. He understood the nature of baptism is that when you are baptized, your sins are cleansed. You get forgiven. And I guess he was realistic about who he was and the kind of work that he did, that he knew that he needed to wait to the very last moment. And that was his plan. He had somebody ready to baptize him if death was ever imminent, and so then on his actual deathbed, the year 337, when Constantine was dying, that is when he received his baptism. It's a strange story. This man who changed the course of history was gaming the system. In terms of his Christian faith, I think it's clear to say that Christianity was on his lips but not in his heart. The parable that we hear from Jesus this morning deals with this. There is a father who has some vineyards and he tells his sons, go work in the vineyards. And the first son says, I will not go. But then he changes his mind and he goes out and he works in the fields. And the second son, the father goes to him and he says, work in my vineyards. And he says, I will go. But then he never does. And clearly, Jesus shows us that what matters more than our words is what we do. I've shared this with a few of you before. A number of years ago, I attempted to write a screenplay. It was a summer project. I worked really hard on that screenplay, which is about half finished still to this day. And I learned a lot of things in the process, and one of the best things I learned was to keep my day job. The, the other, one of the best other lessons that I learned was when you're exposing who a person is and you're writing about a character, whether it's a screenplay or a play on the stage or a novel, the way that people really know who a person is is not what the person says. It's always what they do. Well, Paul comes at this in a very different way in a different circumstance. He's writing to his beloved community in Philippi. He has a lot of affection for these people, and interestingly, Paul is writing to them from prison. It's interesting to remember that when you read the letter and hear about the joy that Paul has in his heart, even though he's imprisoned by the Roman Empire, I might add. 
And when he writes to the people, we can tell from the context that there were some disagreements among the ranks, and he is writing to be helpful to help them come to a place of understanding and action. And his words to them are these. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Paul is asking those Philippians, and he's asking us to do something bold to have the mind of Christ. This is a bold way to try to solve division in a community. Essentially what he's saying is that if all of you strive to put on the mind of Christ and to live accordingly, then you all will have the same mind as one another and your divisions will cease. It reminds me of something that Thomas Merton said, how wonderful it is to not merely do the will of God, but to will the will of God. When you make God's will and your will one, then your life has the mind of Christ. And Paul goes on to include what is essentially a hymn, a hymn about the nature of Jesus. And we don't know for sure if Paul wrote this hymn or perhaps this was something that the people at his time used in their worship services for prayer. And he talks about the nature of Jesus and how he lowered himself. Of course, Jesus had the status of God, and yet he never used that over anybody, but quite the opposite. He moved with humility, and he went down low, so low that he let himself die on a cross, which is as far down as he possibly could go, and by doing that, his name is exalted. For us to have the mind of Christ means nothing less than to go all the way that Jesus went in humility and love and the self-giving nature of his life. And his name is exalted over every other name, Paul says, that at his name every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. And so scholars have asked, what name specifically? Is it the name Jesus? Or is it the name Messiah? Or the name the Son of Man? Well, from the context, we know what the name is, and the name specifically here that Paul is getting at is the name Lord. In Greek, it's Kyrios. The name Lord also refers to the emperor. And what Paul is saying here is that there is a new kingdom. There is a new ruler, one that rules with love, with humility, and here we are faced with the two kingdoms, one built upon a love of power and the other built upon the power of love. And we get to choose. We may respond not only with our words, but with our feet and with our lives 
as we step into that place where we take on the mind of Christ and we make all joy complete. Amen.